Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. As you may know, the Forum for Philosophy is an independent charity. We rely on donations, so do feel free to visit our website and uh, donate there if you should so choose. There you'll find uh, our large catalogue of podcasts and essays. Uh, please do switch your phones to silent. You don't have to turn them off. You can tweet along with us tonight. The hashtag is LSE Forum. And tonight we're going to be speaking about a right to a free press. A free press is considered to be a fundamental pillar of a healthy democracy. It's a vehicle for free expression. It helps inform public debate and hold governments to account. But the press is often accused of overstepping the mark, of invading people's privacy, or publishing material that's harmful to the national interest. We're going to be exploring the nature, importance, and limits of press freedom and the challenges of maintaining a free press in our digital age. My name is Sarah Fine, and ordinarily at this point I would mention my institutional affiliation, but as a UCU member, I'm currently on strike and withdrawing my labour from my institution, so I'm here only in my capacity as a fellow of the Forum for Philosophy. And I'm delighted to welcome our fantastic panel this evening. To my left, we have Dr. Chandrika Kaul. Dr. Kaul is a reader in the School of History at the University of St. Andrews. She's published widely on British Empire and British media, past and present. She's a founding co-editor of the book series, Polgrave Studies in the History of the Media. She is the author of Reporting the Raj, the British Press and India, circa 1880 to 1922, which was published by Manchester University Press in 2003 and also Communications, Media and the Imperial Experience, Britain and India in the 20th Century, Palgrave Macmillan, 2014. She's currently working on a book about the BBC. Next to her, we have Peter Oborn. Peter Oborn was the former chief political commentator of the Daily Telegraph and famously resigned from the paper in protest at its HSBC coverage which he described as amounting to a form of fraud on its readers, placing what it perceives to be the interests of a major international bank above its duty to bring the news to telegraph readers. His books include The Rise of Political Lying, rather appropriately published by the Free Press in 2005, and The Triumph of the Political Class, published with Simon & Schuster in 2007. And then at the end, we have Professor Sue Mendes, CBE. Professor Mendes is Morale Professor Emerita of Political Philosophy at the University of York and a Fellow of the British Academy. She specializes in the theory and practice of toleration. And Professor Mendes was an expert witness at the Leveson Inquiry, which examined the culture, practices, and ethics of the press in the wake of the British phone hacking scandal. So thank you very much for joining us this evening. I'm going to ask our panel a series of questions, and after each little interlude, I'm going to come to you to ask you if you have any questions for us. We've got a roving microphone, so please do wait for that before you start speaking. Thanks. Okay, so our first question tonight is, what is a free press, and why is it considered to be an essential pillar of healthy democracies? And Peter, if I may, I'm going to start with you. Well, the... Um 
the theory of the free press is, is very is perfectly clear. You set it out just now, really, that the press is there to um, keep uh, powerful people honest. In other words, politicians, businessmen, etc., have a great deal to hide. They almost always do. And you have this, this uh, very keen collection, mustard-keen collection of hard-working, public-spirited journalists who expose this, these awful, corrupt, rotten people. And um, the great model of it, of course, is those two epic balls, Woodward and Bernstein. Um, and I, I don't know, how many books is, is it Woodward or Bernstein who produces another sort of incredibly dull book every six months based on his terribly earnest conversation with politicians that's the, that's the idea anyway that you have these Woodward and Bernsteins um, going around the place uncovering facts which wouldn't otherwise come to, into the public domain and, um, and that is definitely the idea with which I entered uh, journalism 30 years ago 40 years ago and um, I, I uh, I've come to doubt the idea of the free press um, partly because, uh, for good reasons. I mean, I think that there never has been a free press, and nor should there be a free press, um, because it's moderated by idea, the libel laws, um, uh, all kinds of laws about hate crime. Um, we shouldn't cause a unnecessary disturbance in the public field, you know, excite people too much. I think they're all going to die tomorrow, which would... Um, and that's, um, that seems to me to be, and so there's all kinds of things which uh, we can't say. Um, and then there's, there's um, uh, then we come on to the, the bigger structural, the bigger structural problems about the free, the, the free press is, is and, and it does uh, bother me a great deal, increasingly uh, bothers me, it, namely that do we have a free, should we really understand the mainstream mainstream media in Britain as being about reporting news at all, or is it doing some other interesting uh, function on behalf of very rich and powerful interests, i.e., establishing a narrative in the public domain, which um, is nothing to do with the truth at all, but is to do with um, attacking a minority established and I'm coming to the view with some reluctance it's uh, hit me over the head again and again that actually that is what the media does uh, in, in, in Britain um, that uh, and, and you can see if you go back over recent history a whole series of completely fake stories which have dominated the uh, news. I'm working at the moment on uh, the Trojan Horse Affair, which was uh, apparently uh, an Islamist conspiracy to take over Birmingham schools. And it's it had real-world consequences, uh, i.e., um, I think about 20 teachers were fired, the schools had new management, the, the law of the land's been changed to embrace a concept called fundamental British values, which was imposed in the, uh, as a result of the Trojan Horse Affair. But I, um, I had a look at this, have been for several years now, and it never happened. It was a complete fake. 
there was no, there was no uh, Islamist conspiracy to uh, take over Birmingham schools. Uh, yet it was uh, reported by endlessly by the Sunday Times, the Times, the Daily Mail, every paper. Um, uh, splash headlines bought into by the uh, major, the BBC, the ITV, etc. And it then was reported on by politicians, by the, uh, the a policeman called Clark, did a, a former head of the a former head of terrorism. And it I did a great report. It substantiated the newspaper allegations, and yet there was never it was nothing. There was no it didn't exist at all. Uh, you've destroyed all these lives, I think. And and so where does that come from? What is the dynamic? Another example is the last uh, general election, which I uh, that where there was no real attempt to report what was going on at all. There was simply uh, two narratives. One was the uh, the exceptional wisdom and, uh, and amazing perspicacity of Boris Johnson. Um, and <laughs> have you read the Times, the Sunday Times, any, the Telegraph Group, the Times Group, the Associated Group, Express newspapers, and to a surprisingly large extent listen to the outpourings of the rather excitable BBC political editor. Um, the... Um, this was the narrative, and let alone the excitable ITV political editor, um, that was the narrative. Whereas against this was this complete anti-Semitic, terrorist-supporting half-wit. Um, and amidst all of which, we lost the idea, we lost the idea, the facts, rather, that Mr. Johnson, no, Mr. Johnson wasn't asked about his plans for Brexit. And so, I, 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 and you can go... I can point to case after case after case where really I'm beginning, I, I, I think we have to ask the question that has the press not about, it isn't about the, the idea I came into journalism with and which was expressed by Professor Fine so eloquently at the start, but it's actually an exercise of raw power in order to support in, in important groups and to attack others. Wow, thank you. So where should we get our news? Um, well, there, there is... Uh, I'm talking there about the mainstream press. Um, you can... I think we have to... Um, I attend Myself, I don't know what everybody else does, uh, make my own judgments about mm -hmm. who is trustworthy and not. Now, there are... Uh, uh, and so you, ha I, 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 you have a, what, a made-to-measure... Uh, is that right, Session? You, you, you tailor your news output. You, there are certain people you know you can trust, not news. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite, and that is a new, and it's enabled by, and there are a lot of people who have a lot to say who are not given no access whatsoever to the mainstream media, like my friend Craig Murray, who's a really interesting man. He's reporting from the Assange trial two weeks ago. It was quite staggeringly brilliant. Uh, and, uh, and yet he wouldn't, he wouldn't be allowed near a, a mainstream uh, outlet at all. Um, he's the man, of course, who blew the whistle on, mm. on torture, on British complicity in torture um, and during the war on terror. So he's completely banned from mainstream. But he has a blog, and I do strongly recommend... Uh, Ambassador Mar Whistleblower Murray's blog because it's crackingly and I, that is that is uh, my view. I, I wouldn't trust a word you believe, uh, and you also but you can assess it. You need to have been nowadays. You just need to be very 
um, worldly wise, I think, about the reporting. You seem to, you need to have to know. You have you need to be able to make sophisticated judgments about who's being briefed and why. Um, and some people, of course, much more wise and experienced than other people. Okay. Other reporters, that is. Thank you very much. Chandrika, would you comment at this point? Yeah, sure. Um, I must admit, I do agree with you, Peter, in the sense that uh, I don't believe we have ever had a free press because I don't believe it is possible to have an entirely free press. I believe it's always historically contingent. Uh, the press in Britain, I would say, is relatively free. Um, but why is it that in Britain we keep having these periodic discussions about, you know, and, and the way you phrased it was a right to a free press. Mm. Now, I think the moment you start using the word of rights, mm. that I'd like to come back to that actually in, a, in, in perhaps in answer to your second question, mm. but I think it's quite important to bear that in mind, the, the language of rights and responsibilities, which I think are, which go together, but that are not often talked about in the same breath. Mm. But why is it that in Britain we keep having this sort of, if you like, this national angst about the fact that we are far worse off with our media uh, than we have ever been? I think that's partly to be explained by the fact that we have journalists who in Britain, and I think quite rightly, um, talk about what they're trying to do and what they are aiming to do by standing on shoulders of giants. In other words, in Britain, we do have the luxury of a relatively long period of documented, if you like, growth in freedoms, in rights. And the argument goes, the conventional, if you like, uh, 19th century Whiggish argument goes that this was a, a hard-fought battle that uh, the fourth estate and members of the fourth estate, uh, if you like, the, the Bernsteins of the past, waged and won against uh, a tyrannical state oppression. Now, that is the conventional history, but it has a hold upon the imagination of contemporary journalists too. One has only to read someone like, for instance, Russ Bridges' wonderfully evocative pieces in The Guardian to understand uh, the importance and pull of that idea of a free press, hard-won journalistic uh, freedoms. But of course, you're probably going to guess what I'm going to say next, which is that this historical emergence of a free press is questionable. questionable. Just like I think it is questionable now to say that the press has never been this bad. You know, this idea of deteriorating standards, I think, needs to be questioned. The argument, again, going back to the late 19th century in particular, the 19th century narrative, was that the victory was the fact that journalists the fourth estate themselves, were free because they were free from official control. They were now controlled and answerable only to the populace, the public, the public sphere. Now, it is questionable whether that is freedom, whether commercial tyranny 
is better than political control. Mm -hmm. Who is to judge that? Um, and certainly the argument that was made at the turn of the century, late 19th, early 20th century, we, we keep seeing repeated, actually, as a historian, I can see this repeated time and again, even in the 21st century in Britain, perhaps in ways that it doesn't happen in other countries. I do have some experience of countries in South Asia and also the US. They don't seem to have this sort of this idea that somehow we must go back to this golden age in the past and things uh, if, would be different if only we learned lessons from the past. But I don't believe uh, it is ever as good as it's made out to be. So I'd like to end this briefly by saying, you know, the right to a free press, yes, of course, we'd all agree that we in a democracy have these rights, but have we ever had them in totality? And what does it mean to have a free press? Is it better to have a press that is a slave to market conditions um, rather than political dictatorship? Who's to decide that? Is it us as voting and consuming publics? And if that is the case, why should that be the case? What gives us the right to sit in judgment of the media? Now, my final point is that, and again, perhaps I'll come back to this in answer to your second question, but I'll just briefly mention this here. Who watches the watchdogs? The journalists who claim to perhaps be these Bernsteins exposing corruption um, or high-handedness or dictatorship or whatever, censorship, where do they get their power to speak? Who gives them the authority to comment on us and the state of the government or the state of public opinion? Are they above the law? Or should they not be considered as part of the same set of rules and rights that govern all of us? In other words, the argument is who decides when the press is free? Is the journalists who decide when they are free? We, can we take judgments about who is right? I mean, Peter, you talked about being self-aware, but how do we do that? in real terms, you know, particularly now with the 24-hour news cycle, with the, the rapidly changing agendas of news and the proliferation of outlets, how can we make these judgment calls? Mm -hmm. And why should I believe your version of the truth and not Carl Bernstein's? Thank you. That's fantastic. And a perfect moment to bring in Sue, because there were some resonances there for me from the Leveson inquiry, this question of who should be doing the regulation. It obviously shouldn't be the government, but who should it be? Who guards the guardians? Exactly. Can I wind back a little bit? Because the, the, the question asked was the question about the importance of a free press in a democracy. And not much has been said about in a democracy. But I actually think the, the proviso that we're talking about a democratic society really does matter mm -hmm. because, of course, it's always good to have truth. Well, perhaps not always, but a large part of the time it's important to have truth. But in a democracy, it, it really matters. And I think it really matters for two reasons. 
The first is that in, in a democracy, if we are electing, when we are electing our rulers and governors, we need to be fully and accurately informed. If we're not fully informed, then we'll make bad decisions as, a, as an electorate. But I think it also matters because having elected a government, and this really, really grieves me and has grieved me down the ages, once you've elected them, they act in your name. In a democratic society, our government acts in our name. And so if we're not fully informed, or if they're lying to each other and to us, then that is a very, very serious matter indeed, because we, are, we as, the, as the demos, as the people, are implicated. So if the question's asked, well, what is, I come back to what is free speech in, 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 in a moment, mm. why does it matter in a democracy? I think it matters largely for reasons of accountability and because in a, in a democratic society, politicians act in our name in a way in which they don't under other or may not, in other political regimes. But what I'd like to do in, in the, the first part of the question, Sarah, was, um, well, what's, what is a free press? Mm. And unless I misheard, Peter said, well, we don't have a free press, and perhaps we shouldn't want it either. Mm. Perhaps we don't Why have that. So what, what, well, what, what was, can I press you on what you meant by that? Um, no, what I said was that I fully... I, well, I, don't, I definitely accept the idea that there are restraints on, freeze, okay. on the freedom. And I don't, I don't challenge the fact that we should have anti-hate laws or the libel court told us to account. Uh, and that means there are standards of accuracy. And mm. I mean, there is a difference between being a journalist and just being a, an ordinary person who writes a story because you're trained to write a story, to assemble evidence, to check facts. You, you see what I mean? Yes, yes, there is a craftsmanship about it, which it is quite an interesting area now in the age of citizen journalists, but I tend to reject the concept of a citizen journalist because you, there is a training and an, a duty even to be a journalist. But I don't think there is or never has been unrestrained right to publish what you want. Nor should there be. No. No, okay. I mean, I think, sorry, I press on the matter because I think it's often thought, and it, it came up over and over in, in the Leveson inquiry. Any number of people parade, paraded in there around the corner, the courts of justice, claiming, well, any sort of regulation is a, is a mortal threat to freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And that strikes me as quite silly. I thought the... The issue I had with Levis, that I thought it was state regulation which was the issue, not any sort of regulation. Well, not any sort of regulation. The, 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 the issue which, and I agreed with this, that to allow the, and I disagree profoundly with uh, you, really, that I think commercial um, papers can make money are independent of the state, and that if you're going to have state control of the press, that is the end, really. I mean, you... And... Um, the um, and so and that was what Leveson was letting. That was the view of that was that was yeah. the, the that was the the, the specter that haunted. I, I grant you, yeah. But I was just pressing on the matter of regulation. I mean, and I was thinking simply of laws. There will be laws governing what can be said. There are already. But there are already. Yeah, a lot of laws. Actually. A lot of laws, yes. Including yes. the D notice system as yep, well. No, I forgot no, to mention there, that. There are, lot, there are lots of yeah. laws. 
and, and so there should be. Could I come back yes, um, both Sue and Peter's point? I mean, Sue, the idea of democracy, um, I think the underlying, whenever we use that term, I think underlying that is a sense that there is this demarcation between government, political parties, and the media. I fundamentally question whether that has ever been the case. In Britain, you know, when we are talking about the freedom of the press in the late 19th century, there was still a massive extension of party control and collusion uh, between not just right-wing parties, but Labour newspapers too. Of course, we had the Labour Daily Herald, um, famously, in, in, the, in the 20th century. So I fundamentally reject the argument that somehow, uh, in a democracy, this assumption, certainly in Britain, that... Uh, a democracy has meant this demarcation of power. I don't think that ever existed. I think that has been there for well over a century. Indeed, the whole concept of a, of a fourth estate is itself, I think, extremely difficult to, to, to maintain. But this demarcation has never been there. In fact, I would argue the opposite. I would like to suggest that it is precisely in a democracy like Britain that we actually see uh, very different but, but distinct enlargement of the links that tied political parties to the media. But um, you're talking here about political parties. I was talking about well, state control of well, the Well, the government, the political party, the government in power. For instance... There is a difference a, between a political party and the state. Well, political yeah. parties presumably win elections in a democracy and then become governments. I think, I think we can push that to a little too far. But, I, you know, for example, in 1906, I mean, we're going back a century, and so it hasn't really changed. Uh, you know, a third of MPs... Uh, would claim to be journalists. Mm -hmm. And there was an extension of uh, state subsidy, but not called as such. Mm. You know, it is the same thing that, you know, in the First World War we saw this, but then, of course, we had the idea that this was war and everybody's got to pull together, and those distinctions between government and the media therefore get blurred. And, of course, we have that in the Second World War, too, with broadcasting, you know, that new medium without borders and the rest of it. But, of course, we know what happened with the BBC and the Second World War. So I do think we need to revisit this whole argument that somehow... Uh, the kind of democracy we've had in Britain has at some point in the past meant this distinction and, and therefore we are enjoying the fruits of that and somehow now with certain governments in power we see, we see, we see, a, you know, we see things going badly wrong. I, I, I don't think history would bear that out. Can I'm just I come gonna, back on this? Yeah, just one yeah. moment if I may because this is um, calling to mind for me another theme in your work, the relationship between the press and the monarchy. And um, that, that's a kind of very complex relationship in the British case, isn't it? The way in which um, you have, for example, royal correspondents who have a very specific job to do. So what, might you say a little something for us about the relationship between the press and the monarchy? Oh, thank you, yes. I mean, of course, this becomes quite... Uh, 
pertinent given the whole sort of makes it, you know, debate uh, and, you know, the parallels that were immediately drawn between uh, the abdication crisis in the 1930s and the role of the press then. And of course, in brief, what happens in the 1930s is that there is this tacit, if you like, gentleman's agreement between newspapers to keep information from the public, mm -hmm. from specifically the, the British public, because the public and newspaper readers in America and in Europe certainly knew far more about the shenanigans, if you like, of Wallace and Edward than the British did. So one has to question whether that service that the press saw itself doing or, you know, serving the monarchy in terms of the, the gentleman's agreement, mm. whether that was actually serving the needs of democracy mm. or not. Mm. Uh, I would argue that what the press, the success of the press mm. in that position in the 1930s actually did far more to discredit the press mm. uh, than anything that they did that they were doing with the whole Mexit drama. Mm. You know, the idea that they were somehow attacking and being irresponsible towards covering the royal story in mm. 2019 mm. compared to the kind of deference we saw in the 1930s. A very, a very interesting contemporary example of this deference applies to Carrie Simmons' baby, mm. which was an open secret in Fleet Street ever since last November. Mm. And... Um, because the, of the intense structural deference to Boris Johnson's government, it won't last forever, but it's going on, everybody knew it but wouldn't write it. Mm. Um, and, of course, it enabled the Prime Minister then to deploy it at a moment of maximum crisis when he got into trouble over Priti Patel. Um, and I, I think that was, um, this was just a very similar structural deference which we get now, only not, sadly, as a monarchist towards the monarchy, but towards the political class. I feel I was making, the point I raised was just the very simple one um, and was not to do particularly with, with government or with political parties or, or anything of that kind. It's just the question which I put to you in a way. If we, if we want something to be free, is that the same as it's being unregulated by whatever? And the answer seems to me to be clearly no. Um, so if you've taught at a university, as I did for 40 years, um, the one thing you know is that you will not get a free and open discussion if the seminar room is unregulated. What will happen is that the loudest people, the noisiest people, and the most assertive people will command the floor. And other people who are smaller people, more deferential people, more polite people, will not get their say. And so it seems to me it is more generally, and I don't want to say about anything myself about political parties or government, but just to make the very simple point that it, it's, it's important not to confuse a free discussion or a free debate with one which is unregulated. In fact, quite the reverse. The freest discussions are the ones which are regulated in appropriate ways. Now we have to ask the question, what, what do we mean by appropriate? Mm. And then questions about the state and about political parties and financial interests kick in. But it, it, was ju it was just that, that sometimes people speak as though freedom is absolutely <clears throat> equivalent to the absence of regulation. And that seems to me to be a huge and damaging error.
Yeah, thank you. Well, well, I mean, I think in Britain, I mean, that was that has been accepted. You know, you go back to the mid 18th century with 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 jurists like Blackstone, who said that what we, when we are talking about the liberty of the press, it's they're really talking about pre-publication censorship, not the fact that the press are able to publish anything they wish without censure. And there is a very thin line between freedom and licentiousness. And I think it's always been clear if you, if you read uh, those who have written about the development of the press right from, say, the mid-18th century onwards, in Britain at least, that distinction has been accepted and has always been well, very clear. But whether it's been followed or not, that is the Perhaps I, I read too much John Stuart Mill where that <laughs> distinction is not as clear. And John Stuart Mill, you know, the 1859 essay on liberty, um, is a pretty mm. libertarian work under mm. some interpretations. As long, right. as, as long as you're a white male. Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, of, he's of a certain cer- amount of wealth. You certainly, yep. Do yep. Have, you certainly do have the, the, the edge there in, in, in that case. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, barbarian. No, 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 the I imagine that our audience are itching to get a word in here. So I'm going to invite you to put up your hands. Um, in a moment, we're going to be thinking a little bit more about limits to press freedom and about challenges for uh, press freedom in our digital age. But please do throw your hands up in the air and I'll point to you. So we've got a question there in the blue jumper with the glasses. Just wait for the, could you wave your hand? There we go. And I'll take a question over here. Uh, if you wave your hand, yeah, yeah, that, that's that person there. And I'll take a question here in the green with the glasses. Okay. Thank you. Um, We've been talking about issues that everyone kind of knows about, but no one speaks out. Mm. Do you think, like to all of you actually, do you think um, that a journalist always has a duty to report on things that he knows that might be of public interest, but which he thinks are not, um, might not do good to democracy to report? Ooh, that's great. Thank you very much. And then in the black, thank you. Couldn't we see media outlets and information they provide us as a perspective? So I was, my question is, isn't it up to us to make our own judgments um, towards the media and what they put out? Thank you. That's great. And then the person in the green, if we could put, thank you, it's coming to you. There we go. I've been surprised that none of the panel have mentioned the uh, coverage of the coronavirus, uh, (laughs) which seems to me to be uh, highly unbalanced. Uh, And indeed, maybe there is a case for some regulation because I'm getting very concerned at the enormous distress uh, that is caused by the exaggerated uh, coverage. Uh, Maybe you might like to reflect on the fact that maybe some people have not come here tonight because they're so afraid of uh, uh, catching it. Mm. Um, And uh, the local school, which my daughter used to go to, has been closed down for a whole week. Uh, And, and, you know, many people regard this as ridiculous. Mm. Um, And uh, I think I'm right in saying, but there's been very little coverage about it, so I don't really know what the facts are. Mm. Uh, And perhaps you can tell me. Uh, uh, is, it, is it not true that actually hundreds of people uh, die every year in hospital from ordinary flu uh, and yet we have no coverage on this 
And uh, uh, all, it's always on the coronavirus. It's never balanced against that fact. Thank you very much. That's three great questions. So we've got the question on whether there's a duty, uh, political journalists have a duty to report on issues that they think they need to speak out about, even when it might be problematic from a democratic perspective. And then we have the, the very nice question about, well, shouldn't we just read these interventions as um, somebody's perspective rather than a stab at the truth? And it's up to us to judge whether or not we want to take it seriously or not. And then the question about whether the reporting around Coronavirus has been irresponsible. So, who wants to start us off? I'll give it a go. Thank you, what Sue. Was the second one again. The second one was: Well, shouldn't we just see these contributions of political journalists as as offering us their own perspective? And the problem really is that we're kind of treating it as a kind of absolute truth. Yeah, I, I leave that one to 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 to, our, to to those who know about journalism. I mean, I, I'm I'm intrigued by the question about having a duty to to report. Um, and for what it's worth, if you want an answer, I think there is a duty in, in a number of cases, obviously not in all cases. But I think what's, for reasons to do with, it seems to me, to do with imbalance of power in the country and in the press, that duty is often not acted upon. And Peter's already mentioned one case in which that duty, if it is a duty, was abandoned in order to pursue a political stratagem. Um, but I think, but before going too hard on that, I'd, I'd like to put something a little bit different to you, which is not that journalists fail in their duty to report what is in the public interest, though they do, but that sometimes they're too eager to report on what is on what is of interest to the public, where well, that's a different matter. Mm. I mean, there are lots of things that the public are interested in. Uh, Carrie's baby, um, all, all, all kinds of tittle-tattle, salacious gossip, what the Duchess of this or that is wearing. And, and that crowds out those, that, that extensive coverage. I mean, there was something like 12 pages in one of the newspapers on, on this un, unfortunate child of, of Boris Johnson. And, and that crowds out other things which actually are in the public interest. And that concerns me quite a lot, I, I must say. Um, and I guess it's what, in, in a sense, it's to go back to, to the question Sarah put uh, uh, earlier on. Well, where do you get your news from? And I think you have to be quite careful where you get your news from, because you're not getting something necessarily that's, that's in the public interest. You're just getting things which interest members of the public. This is great. I'm enjoying it so much. Peter, would you like to come in on one of those questions? Yeah, I think the gentleman is being a bit, isn't really, being a bit unfair to the press on the coronavirus. I think the, the reporting has been extremely responsible. I've heard uh, lots of suggestions that it's just flu, but no, the fact is nobody actually knows. Um, and um, I get, I, I've been quite, I've been very struck by how responsible the reporting has been. Um, on the, uh, the, it, the duty is a, is a very interesting, I mean, if you knew the date of D-Day, would you publish that? No. I mean, if you knew, if you, if, I mean, it's, uh, but on the other hand, is there a duty to, I mean, I think mostly do, people do their best, although there are, it is very, very partial now. Um, 
I um. What was the other one? Uh, so there was the one about whether or not people have the duty, and there was the coronavirus, and then there was uh, the one about what, should we just see the contributions as the perspective of the journalist? Yeah, well, no, as I say, I, most you, one thing which people need to take in, don't possibly understand enough of, is that the, the line taken by the vast majority of political journalists is the one they have to take on behalf of the organisation they work for. They don't actually have an independent uh, mind at all. And uh, that is not what they are employed to do. They, are, they take the line of their newspaper. Mm. Thank you. Well, well, could I just sort of answer in general um, some of the issues that have been raised by all three questioners by uh, citing three different quotes. One from the, the Great Times newspaper in 1851, which declared that the, the duty of the press, and these are the words, the duty of the press is to speak. So the idea that the press itself has abrogated this as its own measure of, if you like, importance is an, you know, I think it's a critical one to bear in mind, particularly in Britain. You know, so the question whose duty it is, well, as far as the journalists in the fourth estate are concerned, it is their duty. It is one that they have stood up to and wish to be uh, counted, if you like. Then we have someone uh, like Prime Minister Baldwin, who of course famously declared in the 1930s that what the press is doing was exercising the prerogatives of the harlot power without responsibility through the ages. And I think the gentleman's point about coronavirus might strike um, some chords there. And finally, we have George Orwell, you know, who once very famously and very powerfully talked about liberty, and it said, liberty means allowing people to say things that one does not want to hear. Mm. So I, I leave it at mm. that. That's fantastic, and that brings us beautifully into our next segment where we're going to be thinking about the limits of press freedom. Where should those limits lie? We know that some things do constitute an unreasonable intrusion into private lives. So how should we draw those limits? Can I start with you here, Sue? Sure. Um, so, insofar as the question is a very general question about where the limits of press freedom lie, I think we're in agreement uh, that, that certain things, state secrets, incitement to racial hatred, that these are not legitimate um, matters to be publicized hither and yon. It's appropriate that there should be regulation of, of those those things. Now, what the kind of re regulation it, it should be is, is another matter. But the, I guess I'm invited here in part because of my involvement with Leveson. Mm -hmm. And it's true that the Leveson inquiry, and I, I just refresh your, I, I refresh your memory if you don't remember, I remain horrified to think that perhaps some of you are too young to remember um, <laughs> what, 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 it, what, what happened there. Um, the Leveson Inquiry was held in 2012, and it was the culmination of quite a slow burn, really, uh, of concern about the ways in which and the extent to which the press in this country were interfering with, in, intruding upon, the privacy of individuals. And the whole thing simply exploded in 2011 with 
the Millie Dowler case. And this was the case. The details are complicated and, and, and also contested. But so so I, I won't drag, drag rake over them. But the crucial point is, is that this was a, a, a schoolgirl who was brutally attacked and murdered. And her parents believed that she was alive because her phone had messages on it which had been opened and read or listened to. It transpired that those messages had not been received by her because she was dead. They had been received by journalists who had hacked her phone. Um, as I say, the details are contested, so I, you know, I, I don't want to go on oath, as it were, on this. But that's the structure of the case, the moral problem. And that was really, really inflammatory case. Um, and I know of no one who thinks that it was anything other than grotesque for the members of the press who did this to, to do it. It was a grotesque intrusion on freedom, and it was a seriously cruel, unspeakably cruel, attack on Millie Dowler's parents because it led them to believe she was alive. So the Leveson Inquiry, as Sarah said, is then set up to inquire into the ethics of the press. And that one case, that single case, became the sort of catalyst for a whole series of investigations into questions about the extent to which press intrusion in private lives is legitimate or, or yes, legitimate, put it, let, let's, let's say that. So Millie Dowler, it seems to me, the answer is there was, that was not legitimate. And I know of nobody who thinks it was legitimate. On the, but, but let's ratchet it up a bit. Amongst the people giving evidence to Leveson were Hugh Grant, the actor, and J.K. Rowling. Now, you may say of Hugh Grant, he's a public figure. If, you, if you're a public figure, you make money by being famous. You can't then turn the tap of publicity off at a point that suits you. And what you do when you choose or elect to put yourself in the public eye is to lose a certain amount of freedom, the sphere of freedom, of, sorry, of privacy. The sphere of privacy for you will be smaller. That's what you chose when you chose to be a film star, it will be said. And, you know, for what it's worth, I think that's right. Again, whether, it, whether Hugh Grant himself was, was uh, badly done by is not the issue. I do think there, that the Millie Dowler Mr. and Mrs. Dowler were just unfortunate, well, very unfortunate people, tragic people, who did not look for the limelight and who therefore were, were, hard and were, were very badly treated. Where, where someone like Hugh Grant, Steve Coogan, these other people, search for the limelight, we might legitimately think, well, different, different standards apply. The circle of privacy is not as great for them. But the one I'd like to bring to your attention particularly, and I raise this question with no idea what the answer might be, is the question of the politician in a democratic society. Mm. In speaking at the beginning, Peter said, well, a lot of these people have a great deal to hide. Mm. And it's the job of the journalist to speak truth to power and to, and to expose what it is that they have to hide. I think that's I think it's true that, that they have quite often a lot to hide. There were, it's, it's not an accident that politicians 
Politicians have things which they would prefer us not to know. For all kinds of reasons, cast your mind back to the expenses scandal um, where politicians claimed, MPs claimed, that used the no receipt prerogative and did, did not submit receipts for expenses. They just claimed they'd rather we don't know about that. So there will be a great deal, and I think it's not an accident, it's structural, that there will be, that there will be things they prefer we not know, and it is the job of journalists to reveal that so that we, the demos, are fully, as fully informed as we need to be. But then if the question is, well, is, isn't it the case that Boris Johnson and David Cameron and other members of parliament and uh, public figures have a right to, to their own privacy in, in the way the rest of us do, I think the answer is not really no. And I think the answer is no because, again, in a democratic society, politicians act in our name. They act for us. And if the people who are acting in our name and are governing us are themselves crooks, we should know about that. So I think what I want to put to you, as I say, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, but it seems to me that there will be different circles of accountability for people who are just ordinary Joes who found themselves in the limelight when they didn't want to. People who chose to be in the limelight as film stars or uh, television celebrities and people who are our political masters. I think the lines are differently drawn for those, for those people. And so if the question is, well, what are the limits of press freedom? I think the limits of, there won't be a one-size-fits-all answer. The limits of press freedom depend upon who you're talking about. Thank you so much, Sue. That's fantastic. And right at the beginning, you said something along the lines of, um, well, there are some clear limits. For example, you know, not publishing state secrets. Um, and, yeah, and <laughs> so the obvious question that comes to mind is, what do you think about, for example, the exposure of the WikiLeaks stories? Well, uh, no, fair, it's a fair point. I, I was, I, I, no, I wasn't careful at all. I, I just didn't <laughs> say, you know, all state secrets right. because yeah. they, they're, you're right, you're mm. right. Mm. There are secrets and secrets. Mm. And so some things clearly it would be, it would be wrong to reveal. Others, the WikiLeaks, I think, is, mm. is, a, is a different one. So I'm, I'm not claiming that all secrets are mm. such that they should, I, they should not be revealed. I want to revealed. say a thing or two about the WikiLeaks. Yes, oh, please do. Oh, go. Come, come I mean, in, it's, please. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, here you have somebody who's broken more stories than the rest of Fleet Street put together in history, many of which deal with uh, gross cases of war crimes, the murder of Reuters journalists by the American forces, by you know, all innocent people in Gu I mean, Guantanamo, and it's the, the, the there's no and yet he's got the idea is he's going to be extradited for espionage now uh, for, for publishing um, stuff which is overwhelmingly in the public interest as far as I can see. Now um, the, the key point here is of course that the British press is completely uninterested in defending Mr Assange and you've got a, I mean the poor Guardian is in a sort of awful state having, uh, uh, but then the rest of the papers uh, don't have anything, they scarcely cover it at all. It seems to be a fundamental issue of press freedom.
uh, which is I don't I'm not a unmitigated supporter of as you've mm. told you that you Mr Assange we should fight like tooth and nail to stop Mr Assange being sent off to the states from which to a jail from which you'll never come out uh, for publishing this material and the feebleness of the Fleet Street is is really <laughs> fascinating and it tells me that the mainstream British media is no longer, and that includes the BBC, is of no, and ITV and Sky are not interested in f the free press, really. They're not interested in the, in the Bernstein model. They, they are clients of power. And um, I, um, it is really, as a journalist, it's a, my, I wasn't... As a journalist, it's one of the most single most shocking. It's even more shocking than Leveson, by the way. It's even more shocking than phone hacking, which was grotesque. And I would actually, I'm less friendly to the press than you are on that. Um, mm. But uh, I do feel that I, it does. My beloved colleagues, I don't understand. Mm. Mm. But, but why, why has this happened? Why has it happened that that these are clients of power? Well, I, 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 see, I think um, that we have to understand that newspapers have gone into a new model in the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, uh, in, in a way, history has, has gone in a um, parabola. So uh, newspapers started off as elite institutions with relatively small markets, but mainly because people couldn't read, uh, most people. Uh, and then you get, suddenly you've got this amazing moment in the mid-19th century when people start to read with the Education Acts and then also you get the penny press and the end of the stamp duty and so on. And you get the mass media, which lasts from 1890 with Northcliffe and it ends, it will end with the death of Murdoch and it's probably ended anyway. Uh, 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 and the commercial, that was the commercial model which where you were so snotty about, but I think is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> because and it, it, basically the commercial model, I know it's hated by people who, by socialists, but it works because it links newspapers to civil society. So you have, an, uh, you have the, the Telegraph, the Guardian, they're read by mass markets, they can't be bought off by the politicians and by the state. Or they can be, but they they have a they can fight the politicians in the state now, and they are independent of it. Now, what you've now got in the, is a catastrophic decline of newspaper readership. Now, this is the, since in the last 15 years, and what you and almost every main paper is bankrupt. Actually, the Telegraph can't make any money. The Times depends on subventions from Murdoch. The um, Guardian, it depends, is a massive, is a lot, it, it claims to have a new model, but it's lost, and it's, its losses have been epic. Uh, only the mail keeps the old model, the commercial model, going. And that has meant that the papers as a whole are now at the mercy of superbly rich men. They are owned by billionaires as playthings. Now, they're enabled to push their own agenda. Now, that is new. And the papers have lost this wonderful link through the market, which the socialists despise, but actually it gave them that link, the person who put 50p to the newsagent and got the Daily Telegraph. And the Telegraph had more than a million readers. That was a wonderful thing about civil society. And it's exactly the same thing, by the way. And exactly the same time, it's happened to political parties. So you go back to the mass political party, the Labour Party, the Tory Party after World War II, three million members, 
and they and that the activists and the members they they go door to door. There's a link between the Ackley, Churchill, Eden, Macmillan, Wilson to civil society. After Thatcher, the membership of political parties collapses. And now, you know, maybe there's 150,000 Tory members. It's gone up a bit lately because of the Brexit entryists. But the parties were handed over, lock, stock and barrel, particularly the Conservative Party, to very rich men. Hedge fund managers, uh, overseas oligarchs, and they took over the agenda of the party and stole it from the activists uh, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and they gave it, and, the, and, the, and exactly the same thing happened to newspapers. Uh, and that, it, it, unless you understand all of that, you understand nothing about the events of the last 20 years. Can I just say that, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with what Peter has just said, except for the fact that he said that this was new. Well, it is not new. He mentioned Northcliffe, the Northcliffs and Beaverbrooks and Randolph Hearsts of the world were exercising those same agenda-setting functions that many ownership. of us criticize, and the ownership. Let me give you one example. In 1906, 1919-10, uh, two-thirds of the British morning and evening newspapers were controlled by three major proprietors. That's no. 1910. So that's a century ago. No, no, but, uh, so this point, idea that no, no, somehow no. the billionaires of today... Can you I just finish? Yeah, but, no, no, the point is, no, but this is the, the point about the Northcliffs, who emerged very quickly, is they ran the papers as businesses. They, uh, they made huge amounts of money of it, which enabled them to, to do proper journalism. The, the, the new generation, they, these big papers are not, lost, are not profitable because they don't have the readers. That is, so it's not an analogy. Well, no, I, dis I, well, I disagree because, you know, Beaverbrook famously said, I run my newspapers for propaganda and nothing else. You know, Northcliffe used his massive reach uh, through the range of newspapers he controlled to run his own sort of campaigns, whether you agreed with them or not, you know, like let's eat more bread. You know, uh, the idea that somehow that gave us better quality of news is very questionable. Uh, you know, the, I think what Northcliffs of the world did so well then, and you know, clearly the people you're talking about now, the billionaires of today, are e doing equally well. No, it's not well. the same thing. Can is, I explain? Can you, I just wait, finish wait, wait. my yeah. It's just not the same thing. The, the difference is this. Northcliffe, Beaverbrook, they were businessmen. They had to sell, sell stuff which their readers wanted. These are billionaires who, who you don't, don't make the money out of newspapers. They, are, they, they use it to peddle their ideas. It's a completely different structure. And the reason it's different is that newspaper readership has collapsed. And so you don't own a, a, a newspaper in order to make money. As these geniuses, Northcliffe, the greatest newspaper genius of all time, um, they, they, picked, they, they knew the market. They presented stuff which they had to sell to their readers. I'm going to have to be Jeremy Paxman-like. Yeah. <laughs> Chandrika, please well, do continue and then well, we'll come well, back. Well, I've been interrupted twice, so maybe, maybe the fourth time I'll be able to finish what I was trying to say. Mm. Clearly, I'm not trying to say that nothing is different now. Uh, I would be stupid uh, to, to, to even try and think that. What I was trying to indicate are tendencies. The agenda-setting function that was so critical to the success of the 
the Northcliffs, these businessmen, uh, was as valid then as it is now. Uh, so Northcliffe didn't get his power, didn't make his millions by telling people what to think. He got it by telling people what to think about which is precisely what the billionaires of today, I would argue, are also doing. Mm -hmm. They're probably just doing it in, in, a, in a much larger scale. Clearly, we're talking about global conglomerates in a way that the Northcliffs of the past never were, though clearly some, some were, but, but, but not, you know, not to the same extent. So I'm trying to highlight tendencies. You know, the, there is this knee-jerk reaction of things have never been as bad as they are now. You know, nobody's reading the newspapers anymore. I mean, things like th these attitudes were precisely the attitudes that greeted Northcliffe's popular press too. You know, the so-called quality press Total at the time. <laughs> Okay, well, I can't argue against that. Uh, no, but there is a, Peter, just, can I explain Peter, where we second. agree? Peter, just of one course. second. Just yeah. one second. Thank no, you. But it is such nonsense. It's of social, rabid socialist nonsense. The well, difference well, is. Well, this is they, a space in which everybody yeah. gets to no, speak. No, just the, one the difference moment, is, of course, they just both had moment, agendas, but the one was they had to sell their papers, the other ones don't, really. They just have to pump out an agenda. They don't have the market, they don't have the relation with civil society and with voters. And it's a, the same thing as political parties. I think you. You're we need like one of those Oscar microphones yeah. that just sort of sinks into the floor. <laughs> just for one second, Peter. Um, I know Sue also wants to come in, but what I want to do is, we, on, in our next segment, we're going to be talking about the challenges for a free press in our digital age, and I feel as though we might as well just segue straight into that, because um, what would be interesting to hear from you, Chandrika, is you've mentioned we've got these kind of past patterns that we're replaying in a way, but are there specific challenges now? So Peter's mentioned, well, we've got the collapse in readership. Are, are, are there other challenges that we're facing now, particularly around the rise of social media, the, the, the potential for everybody to be their own journalist in their bedroom, the way in which we all take our, you know, we, we curate our own news, news feed? Um, what are the challenges for today? So let's go straight into that, and then I'll bring in Sue, and then we'll come back to Peter. Thank you. Do you want me to? Yes, please. Okay, please. right. Um, well, I think, uh, clearly, I, I do, I think, agree more with Peter than he gives me credit for. Um, but challenges um, to press freedom in the digital age. Um, well, I clearly think there are lots of things that are happening now that are new, that are unprecedented. And clearly, I do think that we are sailing into uncharted territory. So having said that, and having acknowledged that we are living in a different world, mm. the point I want to make about, uh, briefly, is about technology. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the things that is, we hear repeatedly about is how this digital revolution, if you like, uh, this, this, uh, the dangerous, as you said, uh, amateur creators of content, you know, the danger in that, and I do entirely agree with Peter on that, that somehow this is a revolution in communication, not just in how you present the news, but how you consume it. So the whole fundamental basis of journalism, the fourth estate and a free press, is, is, is changing and will possibly never be the same again. I do think there is a great deal of mileage in that. But I also want to emphasize how 
the power of new technologies. You know, it is not a given. It is not vested, if you like, in the machines or in the inventions. They are not inherently powerful. Mm. It is the uses to which they are put. And I would like to suggest that there is nothing inevitable about that. Mm. Uh, so how we consume new media, what uh, judgments we formed uh, form about society, about politics, about culture, based on our consumption and our interpretation, if you like, of that. There's nothing inevitable or given in that. Things, things can change. Just to give you two quick examples from history, new technology, radio, for instance. You know, the idea that radio was one of the key ways in which totalitarian regimes in Europe propelled themselves into power is a sobering lesson. Yes, the idea that uh, the use of radio by fascist powers, not just Democrats. Or indeed, look at democracy, 1980s, the coverage of the Falklands crisis, you know, the, the whole satellite, uh, the, the technological innovations with satellite and so on. In brief, the argument that was made then was that the coverage of the Falklands, these small islands, you know, thousands of miles away, was done in a way, in an unprecedented way. I mean, the argument the politicians would like you to believe was that more journalists were sent out there. There was far greater coverage and much more expansive coverage. Yet, of course, the reality is, and the biggest irony is, that, in fact, despite the fact that technology came to the aid of the free press, if you like, we felt we knew far more about it, mm. It was an actual fact, the most tightly controlled coverage under Margaret Thatcher that has ever uh, happened before. So, so what I'm trying to suggest is that the power of technology that is driving, if you like, so much of this new media landscape of, you know, is not a given. Mm. And the impact, therefore, is also tempered by context. So whilst... My final point, mm. whilst I totally buy the argument that these new global technologies are at some level making the press more democratic, press used widely here, making media more accessible, those who have never read a book will perhaps definitely download content from a social media. What the impact of that will be is not given. And therefore, I suppose, to empower ourselves as citizens, as consumers, we mustn't, many of us, and I, and I really mean that, for instance, the, the concierge in, in the hotel I'm staying at turned to me and said, why is it that the British always criticize the power of new media? Why do they always feel that they are worse off? Look at where I come from. I come from Bulgaria. And, and, you know, and he then explained his own context. And he ended by saying, 
thank God for social media, the fact that we can actually get some information, because we certainly can't get that from the three newspapers and the three broadcasting stations we have in Bulgaria. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that we are very privileged in Britain, and I think we need to respond as consumers responsibly to that, rather than feel disempowered at some level by you know, the, the fact that technology is this unstoppable machine. Mm. Thank you, that's fantastic. Um, so I'm going to go to Sue and then Peter, and could you try and keep it a little short so that we have plenty of time yes. for our wonderful audience yep. to come back in? So, Sue, I, I, I will, thank you. I will be short. Um, and it's really two questions. There's a debate here about the relationship between the, the older press barons, Northcliffe, Beaverbrook, mm -hmm. and the position we now have. And I'm, I'm just reminded in, in that discussion between Chandrika and Peter, I just was reminded of a point which is made by Nora O'Neill. And, and it is that, of course, what's problematic about the position that we're now in is not that there are it's not simply that there are rather few people in control of the press, but that the people that there are, the billionaires, um, live in Australia, have no vested interest in this society or this country or how we, or how we do. And that's a very... I, I don't know whether it's the difference, that, how much of a difference the difference makes, but it, you know, I certainly think that her point is a very... It is, is, a, telling, is a telling one, it's a thought-provoking one, that... that say what you like about Beaverbrook, and they, they lived here and had a, had a stake in what happened here. Um, and that's not true now, and that's a little bit un unsettling. Um, but the other thing I wanted to raise about social media and new technology, um, which again is just an, a sort of point of unsettling, is in many, many of these cases there is a huge difficulty, which is that we, we don't know on what authority things are being told to us mm. through social media. So, I mean, I, not, not wishing to, to... No, I will be mischievous. I, <laughs> I, I know if I, read the, I, if I read the Telegraph, which I don't. I, I know if I read the Telegraph, I'm getting a view from the right. I, I know that. And that's, in some ways, I think, well, it's disgraceful, this Tory rag. But in another way, I think... At least I know who's telling me this and who, who they are and what their agenda is. And then you read it in that context and then you're informed. Okay, okay it's not, as it were, my truth, but at least I, I know where it's come from. And a difficulty with social media, I, I think just for, for all of us, um, is that you don't always know, I mean, in, the, in, the, in the Paxman expression, we don't know why these lying bastards are lying to us when it's social media, when it's the, the established press, we, we do. Or even if they are lying. Or even if they are lying, yes, indeed. Well, so do, just two thoughts. We okay. do know that they're lying because Zuckerberg, I mean, we, we have been, the, the age of the Booverbrooks and the Northcliffs of the, who dominated the last century have been replaced by Zuckerberg at Facebook. And Zuckerberg is the new Northcliffe. And he's quite clear that he lies. His interest is content. He is completely indifferent. He's been honest about this to truth. And one of the problems for people of my generation, I'm 62, is that we don't really understand 
how social media, I don't, how social media works. And the um, use by the political parties, particularly the Conservative Party, um, of, of these social media groups is very sophisticated indeed now. So much so that the people I, I talk to at Conservative Central, like the strategists say that it doesn't, they're not, they know that the, what is in the newspapers doesn't actually affect voters. They get it, they get it out there in, in Facebook through fake accounts which says, this, look, wow, this is an amazing article. Uh, and it, that the fake account has the appearance of independence. So we've moved into a very shadowy world controlled by people who are incredibly rich. Personally, and this is funny enough where I start to agree with you, uh, your statist point of view, that I would, um, I would break up these big corporations. I wouldn't have them. I think it's a massive political problem, Zuckerberg. And just as Roosevelt took on the, uh, on the oil barons and the, uh, in, in the end of the 19th century, I would take on these people and I would destroy them, actually. Uh, they are a total menace to yeah. democracy. Mm. Yeah. First round of applause. Thank you. Fantastic. Right, I'm going to open back up to our audience. Do throw your hands up, and I'll I'll take a question over here at the end. There. To start with, and put your hands up again, and then just behind you here, and then somebody. This person, brown coat. Thank you. Congratulations to the LSE for putting on a splendid event. Uh, <laughs> First of all, in the study of logic, we have to distinguish between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. And a lot of people don't understand the difference, but it's actually very important. Um, I take issue with the title of your talk, actually. I think it's a bit meaningless. Uh, uh, there's two elements to this. I mean, first of all, uh, I, would, I would like Professor... Sue Mendes to tell us, she's told us what a free press isn't. I would like her to define what a free press is. We've heard that it's not an unregulated press. Fine, okay. We haven't heard what else it is. So there's a duty on a talk like this to actually define the terms that it's using. So what is a free press? To me, it is an unregulated press, and I think if you ask 90% of the English British population, they, they would say that. That, to me, is the definition of a free press. Sorry, so if you mean hear, something else, you must say you, what sorry. else you mean. Uh, can come back uh, later, uh, please. Uh, okay. uh, as to a right to a free press, well, what does that mean? Do I have a right to a helicopter and a yacht? Do I have a right to be a billionaire? Do I have a right to champagne? Billionaires exist. Do billionaires have a right to exist? I think they do, unfortunately. Uh, do billionaires have a right to own printing presses and to pump out propaganda? I think they do. It's, I'm very unhappy about it. Um, so I'm glad that the panel gravitated in the middle section away from this rather meaningless title to actually look at this, the, the ownership structure of the media, which is the all-important question. Should these conglomerates be allowed to have this concentrated power. We have a mon monopolies and mergers commission for, for companies and they, say, and they say to some companies, you're too big, we won't allow it. Why can't we do that with the media? 
it's a tragedy that Leveson got it so terribly wrong, hearing all this brilliant evidence about all the dreadful things that happened, and then came up with a bureaucratic licensing scheme that is a nightmare and actually doesn't stop the press from doing all the terrible things that it's, it's continuing to do anyway. And I also agree with Peter Oborn that the press has been incredibly responsible over coronavirus. And even the sun, which I see in my local cafe every lunchtime, I can't believe it. It's, how, it's, it, it's done a very important job of exposing government inadequacy. Thank you very uh, much. That's uncharacteristically. Great. Thank you very much. And just behind you, thank you. Uh, hi there. Um, I was wondering what you think about a uh, potential inequality of news consumption, because there are, mm. uh, like the New York Times is making record profits, same as the Financial Times, but then there's studies into how people consume content on Facebook or Twitter, and it's, it's turning into a mess. So are we reaching a point where probably people in this room might subscribe to the Times or... FT or whoever, but the majority are just sort of getting clickbait and rubbish on these social media platforms. And if so, what are we going to do about it? Thank you very much. Did you say the inequality of news consumption? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. And we had a question over here. Great, Hello. thank you. Oh, I don't know. Is it on? Yes. Yes. Hello. Um, thank you so much for tonight. Um, I did my undergrad degree in philosophy and I'm now doing my master's in media governance. So this is a dream come true for me. I might be dreaming. I don't know. <laughs> um, but thank Nightmare. you so much. <laughs> it's debatable. Um, so, yeah, thank you. There's been so much food for thought. Um, but as a philosopher at heart, um, this discussion throughout all of it has reminded me that actually... Uh, these are very theoretical things we're talking about. So um, immediately the, free, the aspect of freedom, um, are we talking about, in the UK we sort of have a freedom from, a freedom to model, sorry, which is a positive freedom. So um, we have, the government provides us the freedom to have a, you know, democratic say and everything. And the US model has the freedom from, um, which so it's different. That's a theoretical model. Um, I'd just be interested to hear what um, the panel thinks on whether there is much more room for uh, philosophy to come in and get into the nitty gritty bits of this. And I was thinking with even the word freedom, we, ha we had a discussion, what does that mean? That's a linguistic problem. Um, and actually, fundamentally with news, um, it almost comes down to what do people need to know? And that's a knowledge question. Question: what, what do I need to know on a different basis? That's going to be different to everyone else in this room. Um, so I just wonder, um, is it worth going back to theory? Um, my pr professor the other day said to me, um, there's nothing more practical than theory. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if uh, perhaps maybe doing some theorizing about news, maybe philosophy can um, give us some of the answers, especially actually as we move into the digital age and we have to tackle these questions that are emerging. How can we make that sustainable using theory? Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much. So I'll, I'll try and consolidate those questions into uh, single lines, if I may. <laughs> so um, we had the, the interesting question about, what, let's go back to the start, what actually is a free press, um, can we specify that more clearly? Um, and then we had the question about the inequality of news consumption. Some people are reading the New York Times, other people are getting their news from perhaps uh, less reputable sources. What does that mean for uh, press freedom and democracy more broadly? And then of course, the question that every philosopher wants to hear, what's the role of philosophy in this debate? Who wants to get us started? Chandrika, may I go to you? Well, I was hoping you wouldn't say that. 
<laughs> but okay, well, I totally I do agree with with the the first speaker here because if you recall at the beginning, I sort of said we do need to uh, look at what means to be saying right to a free press. We never really got back to that, but I, I totally agree with that. Um, different kinds of truth we get in journalism. I mean. This is, this is a perennial question. We're not going to solve it today, and I don't think it is possible to solve it. But dare I say it, you know, the idea of what is a free press, I think, you know, what, what is, if you like, the duty, I'm using that word carefully, duty of a of, of free press. And sitting next to, you know, Peter, dare I quote um, Carl Bernstein here, um, and I think... Uh, to quote him, he said, well, the aim is to get the best obtainable version of truth. I think that's a pretty good way of trying to understand, if you like, the, what a free press should be trying to do. Mm. Thank you. Um, Sue mentioned earlier there might be some people in the audience who didn't know what the Leveson Inquiry is. There might be some people in the audience who haven't heard of Carl Bernstein, so maybe we could say a little bit about him. Who was Carl Bernstein and why is he important for this debate? Well, yeah, in the... Um, <clears throat> tell me if I got this wrong, but I... I uh, in the um, <laughs> 1970s, there were two young, ha long-haired uh, yeah. journalists in the, writing for the Washington Post yeah. um, who uh, who'd brought down... who discovered some nefarious act. It seems very minor today. <laughs> I mean, it, really, it's hard to see what Nixon almost did, which was improper. He, Nixon stole, tried to bug yeah, at the Watergate Hotel, the, of his, his rival, George McGovern, uh, and this was discovered, and uh, it was the height of the uh, liberal uh, self-awareness. It couldn't be done today. If you discovered that Trump had bugged um, um, uh, Biden, I mean, nobody really would mind at all. But... Um, it brought down Nixon. And, um, but uh, to answer your question, the, I, 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 generally speaking, I think that postmodernism is a total and utter waste of time. Um, I don't think it has any interesting philosophical, historical, or any other form of insight. But I find it very useful, uh, the techniques of postmodernism, uh, if you apply them to contemporary uh, journalism because it is a creation, a construction of narratives, the creation of the truth. And that is what uh, journalism and, of course, political discourse uh, is about. And Foucault's interpretation of uh, truth as a manifestation of power is, is very, very helpful. Uh, and modern politicians have understood, the cleverer ones, uh, Peter Mandelson said, I, I had a com correspondence with him about it because I was very interested when he said it. He said, uh, my job is to create the truth. So you create a narrative. Uh, and once you've created the narrative, it's very, very hard indeed uh, uh, to change. And it's how you win elections. It's how you secure political Objectives. This, this, this narrative is not true. It has nothing to do with the truth. But it is about power, and it is how you secure it. So. Right, well, the, the question's been put. Uh, uh, by the way, I think your professor, whoever he or she is, is very wise. <laughs> Extre extremely. I mean, I mean that. I, because it, it does seem to me, and I, I would defend this at length, if given length, 
um, that philosophical thought is actually deeply practical or, or, it's, or it's not worth doing. So I, I, do, I do think that there's a very big role for, for, for philosophical thought in, in these, dealing with these pra practical problems, uh, though I can't give a full defense of that now. Uh, but the questions then raised, well, what's, what's the free press? We've said a lot about what it isn't, so what is it? Well, again, I, I try in a, in a, in a minute to, to say what it is. We, we've, we've said, I've said, that a free press is not a completely unregulated press. And I think a completely unregulated press would not count as free in some part. It, it, that would just be license and not freedom. In some part because where freedom is not regulated or governed or controlled, then the freedom of one group of people will crush the freedom of others. It's the old saying, freedom for the fox is death for the chicken. So if you're talking about freedom, you need to specify what kinds of regulation would be compatible with. You, you need to say why the lack of regulation is incompatible with freedom, and I've given a hint as to why you might say that. And then you need to say what sort of regulation would enhance freedom across the piece. And there, I mean, in a sentence, I, I personally would think you could do a great deal worse than, than look at John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, where he gives a very, very succinct account of the nature and value of press freedom and his view, which I think has a lot saying, going for it but not everything, is that a free press is a press which is able to pursue truth and that in a democratic society we need a free press in order that we can be informed, in order that we the people can be informed, in order that we can know what is true and in order that we can cast our vote on the basis of reliable information. I don't think that's a full and complete answer, um, but I do run a very nice course on this at the <laughs> University of York, which takes a couple of years, and I, and, and, you'll find, and I think you'll find a few more answers in. No, seriously, it's a serious point. That is a very, very big question, which has, which has confounded philosophers and others since at least Plato. Mm -hmm. So I don't make an apology for not giving a, a full and complete answer here, but I think that's the outline of one. Thank you very much. So we've only got a few minutes left, and what I'd like to do is leave our speakers with just a minute each to sum up. Is there anything that you'd like to add as a final word? I'll start with Chandrika, Peter, and then finally Sue. Well, um, you know, John Stuart Mill, the same John Stuart Mill, uh, also defended the right to have empires and also talked about stages of human progress and you know one has to be careful when one is and I totally I totally agree that it is really important to try and look at history and at those who have talked about philosoph the philosophical approach to what it means to be free and have a free press and the role of a free press in society. But we do need to always contextualize this debate. You know, I think it's really dangerous to take some of these uh, philosophers out of context. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. That was perfect. Peter. Well, the first thing I should do is to say to Shandrika, it was a, what a boring, rude person. I almost always end a panel discussion of this nature with an apology to somebody I've forgotten. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> because I get overexcited. Um, the, um, I, 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 and I want to be rude to the um, 
uh, you instead. Uh, the, um, the, uh, Everybody else, John, John, John Stuart Mill is absolutely useless as a guide to um, the press. Uh, uh, he, um, I like, a, he, as you quite rightly say, he only thought he was writing for very wealthy, affluent white people. And um, anybody else was a barbarian, a lower order. Uh, but that was... Um, Rather, that actually does slightly apply, you know, if you're a, uh, a Muslim or a, a sort of an Iraqi or something like that, the press, you don't get a very good fair, fair whack at it from the press. But um, the, uh, the main point is, of course, that Mill's central insight that you defend, you, you know, how, if you're a minority of one, you have a right. The press is exactly the opposite of that, if you want to understand it. If you are a minority, they will go after you and go on going after you. They will demonize you. They will pillory you. It is about establishing conformity of thought. That is what the press sets out to do in Britain at the moment. It's something we need, really need, and there are example after example of it in recent years, and we need to confront that. And not on behalf of John Stuart Mill, but just uh, on the side, a bit of balance and fairness and decency. Thank you very much. Sue. Uh, well, I, I didn't say that I wanted to invite him for dinner. <laughs> I, I said that he had an argument, which seemed to me a philosophical argument, an argument of principle, which seemed to me to be important and interesting. If you say, well, he's a bit, he was a bit dodgy on matters of empire, of course, this is, this is true. He was of his time, um, as, as we all are. So it wasn't, I, I, I wouldn't wish to, to put the argument for canonization. I, I just think that the arg Miller's argument from truth is an important argument which we should take seriously. And, um, well, I guess, I guess that's all, really. I, I do just feel that if we're asking the question, why does it matter? It matters because it matters that we should know the truth. And it matters that we should know the truth because the people who act, the, the political leaders, governors, act in our name. And, and that's, I mean, it's a very simple and short thing to say, but it's hugely important. When they go out there and tell lies, they tell these lies in my name, and I won't have it. And it's that thought that's driving me, and it's that thought that is there in Mill, you know, for all his, his he was good on, he was good on the enfranchisement of women, he was, he was good on that, uh, but like all of us, he had his little faults. <laughs> Thank you very much. So um, Sue's absolutely right that we'd need two years to do this topic justice, but we've had a very good stab at it tonight, and I want to thank our panel for a wonderful discussion. Oh, thank you. <laughs>